would like to buy your own copy of Indigenous Women's Voices, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Emily is a true away woman of Tebrakana country, northeast Tasmania, Australia. Her research fields over the last 25 years have focused on Indigenous affairs, land and sea management, natural and cultural resources, regional development and policy and governance of Australian regulatory environment. Jen Evans is a Darug woman with dual connections to Darug and Palawa country. She's a research fellow with a rural clinical school at the University of Tasmania whose research is focused on the valuing of natural environments, land use conflict, participatory GIS mapping and indigenous methodologies. Together, they are the anthology editors of Indigenous Women's Voices, 20 years on from Linda Tuhiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies. In part one of our episode, we'll be discussing the reason why the editors wanted to reflect on Linda Tuhiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies 20 years after its publication, examples of colonization in academia, and the importance of incorporating Indigenous voices into our institution. We also delve into the process of making this an open access title and much, much more. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wei Ming And I'm your other host, Rebecca Morofsky. Technically, it is tonight's podcast for me because we are talking to authors from down under today. It's Emily and Jennifer Evans, editors of the Indigenous Women's Voices book, 20 Years On from Linda Tuiwai Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies. Welcome both of you and thank you so much for being on the show today. It's just an absolute pleasure to come from playing Hikinilapuru country in northwest Tasmania to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're really excited to have a yarn with you today. We're both very excited as well. Without further ado, let's get into it. So the first question we want to ask, context, what is a methodological approach and how does one decolonize methodology? Great question. One of the things in Western education is that there's not a reflection about how knowledge it's really gathered. So a methodology is quite different from a method. A method might be I'll go out and collect data or maybe I'll put together a survey or maybe I'll go out there and count how many grains of sand. But a methodology is about the underpins of knowledge. And I've never actually read any Western academic text that says, I'm taking this approach, which, you know, Western knowledge is based on objective, non-biased approach, thousand years of university learning from Europe mainly, you don't get that. And so what happens is that we're quite fortunate, but it's also a bit of an issue in that Indigenous methodology. They're not just a methodology. They've always got Indigenous put on front of them because they are outside of a Western tradition of how knowledge is gathered. We are not objective. Oh, no, no way. We bring ourselves and, you know, as Indigenous people, we can't untangle who we are from country and homelands and place, Mm. family, our elders, our cultural practices, our ways of being and knowing. So it's no mistake that our way that we do our research, call it methodology, call it what you like, It's a reflection of who we are and how we are. It has to be natural. Yeah, it's not siloed out. You can't chop up 
an Indigenous woman into bits of knowledge. So we bring it all to the table. That's really powerful. For a little bit more context, this book, I think, is a reflection on a legacy. So why did you want to reflect on Linda Tuiwai Smith's decolonizing methodologies 20 years after its publication? And why do you think it's important that we hear from Indigenous women specifically? There was trouble brewing in New Zealand, in the university where our Diani professor was working back in 2018, September, I think it was. There was a protest outside. There were issues with her faculty being demoted, you know, and that caught our eye. And we thought, wow, our absolutely supreme Arnie professor is being treated this way. This is really disturbing. Perhaps this could blow across the Tasman Sea and get us in the work that we do as, you know, a couple of isolated early career academics. It was a real concern because what she's been able to achieve in the 20 years has just been incredible. When she started out, those early reviews, they kind of suggested oh, well, you know, this might be useful for a handful of undergraduate Indigenous students. Yeah, maybe. I can't really see the massive context. And as time grew, you know, a couple of other non-Indigenous reviewers started to notice it and said, yeah, okay, it may have some application, but, you know, time will tell. And time did tell. What an amazing piece of work. Linda really codified the way how Indigenous peoples could operate within Western academies. She made it okay to have our connections to our life worlds mean something within this framework that has always excluded us. And she did it from a position of saying that while we've been excluded from Western knowledges, our forms of knowing the world are really important And we don't actually need anyone to tell us that. But what happened is that this is so shocking to think about, that in 1999, Indigenous methodologies was not a known quantity in Western academic and higher institution education bodies. This was an unknown quantity. And so Linda actually codified a whole field of research and knowledge. And then for her to be treated and what she called out was racism from her university, it meant that none of us were safe. And so Indigenous cultures are one about gratitude and paying respect to our elders. So we wanted to use the academy to pay that respect to our elders and say, we are here with you in this solidarity and this struggle to be heard. It really seems then that decolonizing methodologies changed the game in academia very significantly. What does this book mean to you both personally? Because it's clear that the impact and legacy is huge. We have to, again, think about what exclusion from academia and knowledge means. I mean, in Australia, the first Aboriginal PhD wasn't conferred until 1980, and that was from the University of Papua New Guinea. I mean, the first Australian university to confer a PhD on an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander happened in the mid to late 1980s. This is literally 30-something years old in Australia. Aboriginal people being part of the education system. And so what this meant to us is that this is still fresh. While 
new generations might think, okay, this is something that I can get into and dig around and feel connected to. For us, and particularly Jen and I, we're not young birds, we're quite old. This is our history. We've been excluded and denied our place in academia. And so Linda, actually, she kicked down that door to be able to say, no, 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 you're welcome around this table. And so this is a very personal collection of essays about how we create the safe spaces for Indigenous women in particular to be able to report back from the margins of being colonised, what that looks like, what that feels like, so that others can join us in dismantling these structures of colonisation in education. And for us, being able to take time to honour Linda's work and bring the power of our black female voice to that has been the most exciting experience for me. Having the freedom to engage with who I am and how I am and express and respond to Linda's call about how we can be as academics, is how we can do our scholarly business, women's business, has just been the most empowering and transformative thing. And, you know, my hope is, my hope is that anyone who gets to read this book, any other Indigenous person out there who gets to read this book, can see themselves in it and can see that they too can express themselves this way should they want to. Because it's important for us to be able to express ourselves academically and personally in this way. Mm -hmm. It's healthy for us. As Indigenous peoples within a framework that has never wanted us, we don't have the right to be honest. We're meant to perform to certain concepts around indigeneity. And we can't be honest about the hurt, about the trauma, about the struggle. And so we felt that this book may have been a place for the women in particular that we reached out to, to be able to start processing what that actually looks like for them, but coming from a place of safety where as women, we nurture and cherish each other. We provide that place to explore and express your honesty in ways that are comfortable to you. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the violence of the academy takes on so many different forms, but something about, you know, the things that you were saying on safety really resonates with me of just this idea that you have to perform your identity in these really colonial white spaces. And just thinking about the reason why visibility is so important is just for people on the margin who have not been allowed a seat at the table. You have to organize together and demand a seat at the table. And it's really just powerful to see people who look like you represented in these fields that have been so exclusionary in the past. I want to think about even the process of putting together this book, the idea of how we construct an alternative form of knowledge. And I think one movement in publishing, maybe this is getting in the weeds, but I think a lot of people are interested, this process of open access, thinking about who can even have access to reading your book. So I was wondering if you could talk about the process of making your book open access and did you find institutional support or were there any obstacles that you ran up against and how does open access relate to the act or the objective of decolonization? Publishing is part of the academy and 
there's no real spaces for Indigenous peoples in publishing as much as there is the academy. And it's true, you can't be what you can't see. And unfortunately, colonisation and the structures of colonisation that collide with the structures of capital have meant that knowledge now comes at a price. I mean, it's quite different from Indigenous cultures where knowledge is a system that we aspire to, that there's not that many barriers beyond yourself and how you move up the scale to become an elder. And it is expected of you. You are cherished, you are nurtured. And while there is secret, sacred knowledge, it certainly isn't exclusive knowledge. You have to earn it to work it. And that's quite different from capacity to buy a book, pay out some cash. We know that Indigenous peoples are some of the world's poorest peoples. Why would I want to have a sister girl or an auntie or a grandmother pay out to see themselves in the most legitimate and authentic publishing spaces that's Z Impact and Bloomsbury, I mean, Bloomsbury books. And so this is part of the gift of gratitude, the sense of gratitude of paying forward, of always, as an Aboriginal woman, you always leave things in a better condition than what you found it. And so you could be anywhere as long as there's an internet connection and have access to this book. And that's really, really important, particularly for young women in countries that crush Indigenous peoples. We want to be able to say, we are here for you. And so open access has been incredibly central to the frame of how we want Indigenous women's business to be seen and heard, that this is for everyone to join us and walk with us in creating equity. And so my university in particular, Swinburne University of Technology, was absolutely supportive. I was able to use my own research funds to do this. And we wanted a sense of being able to centre Indigenous voices when they're always being marginalised. And so open access is about providing that equity back to Indigenous women in particular. But for all people, we don't want non-Indigenous people to feel left out on this. Not just as important to walk with us in this aim of decolonising, because if they don't know how we feel and see the world, how are other people meant to join us in crushing these systems of denial and exclusion? And the beauty of the online capacity is that ability for people to share digitally. That's incredible. We all know how powerful that can be. And, you know, from there, hopefully that can spark discussions, it can spark debate, spark some thoughts. Maybe it'll touch someone and someone will do something amazing. Yeah, it could be the first time someone's actually had contact, Mm. hearing, reading, the voice of an Indigenous woman. I mean, that's extraordinary. It is a matter of gratitude that in honouring Linda's work, we make it accessible. Yeah, I'm very excited to see what conversations are sparked by your book and in particular by it being open access. It's great to hear that your institutions were supportive of this book and of 
it being open access. I just was wondering about, unfortunately, the darker side for the Academy. Decolonizing is like so central to your book and also to Linda's. Are there any particular examples of colonization in the Academy that you would like to talk about? Or how does violence in academic institutions manifest itself? I think for a lot of people, sometimes it can feel a little bit technical, but violence in academia is very real. So I'd just like to hear you guys expand on that, if that's okay. This is a tough one because an old uncle once told me that for every day that he was at Western School, was one day that he wasn't on country learning. And so top down, actually attending Western forms of education is a denial for Indigenous peoples to be learning on country. And so colonisation is very much a violence of erasure of Indigenous knowledges and sovereignties and the replacement of settler colonial stories that justify that. And so as an Aboriginal woman, we're always having to relive a trauma of history. We're always having to respond to a language of violence against us. No, you can't say that. No, that terminology is wrong. No, that perspective from that white man is incorrect. And so what we're missing out on is that I know to be an Indigenous woman is to have love love of our country and territories of life, love for our elders, love for our young people, love for our communities, love for that connection to country. And in denying Indigenous people's knowledges and in denying the way how Indigenous peoples connect to country, I feel so sad for non-Indigenous peoples. I've always said if you love country, country loves you right back and you're never lonely. And there is a scourge of loneliness of people trying to connect to the world around them. And Indigenous peoples, we live that every day. And so to have that denied the right for us to be honest, to speak about how glorious it is and that gift of kinship and reciprocity with country makes me sad. I mean, decolonizing on a very theoretical lens is about the return of land and power back to Indigenous peoples. But I see it a little bit differently. I see it as a place where we grieve together as black and white for the things that we've been denied. Um, Aboriginal Tasmanian, in 1876, the world was told that we were exterminated completely. When I was born, I wasn't even considered a human. I had to fight for that. And that kind of violence that follows itself through the academy is so traumatic. It doesn't have to be anything pointed. In my case, it actually is. <laughs> we don't exist. <laughs> but it's not, it's not these one-off occurrences of someone saying something awful. Absolutely. And the people that are from Solon generation, my family, it's even harder because, you know, it's expected that you'll say, exactly who you are and where you're exactly from and how you came to be. And this is a very difficult thing. How do you have that conversation when you say that your family have been stolen off the streets? Having to explain that over and over is a hurtful process. When the Academy now wants us to be these authentic, out-of-the-box Indigenous cultural people. And, you know, cultural violence in all forms can be casual. 
casual racism that trickles down from the top or from the bottom or the side or wherever it might be. Or it can just be that exhaustion of having to continually justify who you are and where you're from and why you're here. And, you know, insinuation that perhaps you might want to tone it down a little. That's a little bit edgy where you're going with that. I don't quite understand what you mean by an Indigenous methodology. I'm not really sure why you're so fired up about having a go at the Western academic canon. What's that all about? Why? Why are you doing this? And so for us, we have to find solidarity. Our book is the most beautiful way of us finding that solidarity. And it's a beautiful expression of how it's possible to bring people together. We refer to each other as sister girls. And, you know, even the process of writing together was the most beautiful, most cathartic, the most strengthening, the most powerful way I've ever written ever. It has been, for me, if this is it in terms of my academic and writing experience, I'll be very, very happy in my whole life. I've written for others and it's kind of stale. It's from a distance. There's a call out. You write an abstract. You submit it. You get it peer reviewed. You get it published. For us, we came together with Zooms. We had chats. We had yarns. We checked in. We worked with our sister contributors, worked with them to keep them safe because we were asking something absolutely incredible of them. We were asking to open themselves up open themselves up to the world for some to tear off wounds to talk about who they are and where they come from and how it feels to survive the violence of the academy. There wasn't one author, and even for ourselves, who in speaking and saying, come write for us, and it's like, my voice doesn't matter. What have I got to say? And this absolute low self-esteem that the academy has taught us as Indigenous women to despise ourselves, that our voice has no value. The behind the scenes of this book is so extraordinary that none of us have had a voice. And when we all came together, as Indigenous peoples do, the collective gave us that sense of a powerful voice. The cover art really reflects that. We are unexpected. We are beautiful women of spectrum and a range of skin colour because that's our history. Violence of the academy comes out of the violence of us, kidnaps and the rapes and the assaults. And so we weren't going to try and pretend that we're something that we're not. And that's why I like this beautiful volume because Linda gave us permission to be as broken and as glorious and as authentic in that perspective of finding ourselves is what we wanted to be. Yeah. So much of what you were saying, really so many things come into my mind. Just, I think that when your existence isn't treated as the default of humanity, speaking truth to your experiences and your identity is treated as a threat to that. If your narrative, if your history hasn't been treated as just default humanism, then I think The people who occupy positions of power are threatened by the ways in which that knowledge can undermine their identity. I wanted to ask, what's at stake when we don't decolonize knowledge? And I think one of your points is just that I think we all lose something when we don't embrace and privilege Indigenous knowledge. Recently, I read, this really reminds me of Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Will Kimner's book. This is just as an aside, but she talks about this moment of how in her nation, in Potawatomi Nation, there's this word for 
the process of a mushroom springing from the earth overnight, just magically, and that there's not a word for that in English. And it really stuck with me because I just feel like even as my own experience of just being in the most disenchanted, super capitalist country on earth, just the ways in which I have also living on this colonized land as a settler, having the history of settler colonialism in my blood, just the ways in which I've also been divorced from the land and how that has just been such a disservice to me as well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, like just what we all lose out on when we don't decolonize the institutions. It's lonely. It's lonely when, particularly as settler colonials, I don't bear a grudge. I want people to become my kin. I want to be able to recognize everyone as brothers and sisters. I want people to know that connection to country. I believe country, our territories are alive, pliant and elastic enough to have a space and a place for everyone. Colonization says that you're not allowed to be vulnerable. You're not allowed to be connected. You have to own. You have to be owning that domain of nature. You have to create a resource and extract from it. You can't just belong. You know, there's always something out of capital. Capitalism is the most exhausting system. Whereas for Indigenous peoples, you know, capitalism, you have to become global. Whereas Indigenous peoples, we don't want that. We just want you to care for that little bit of country. We want you to know every blade of grass, every bird song, every cloud in the sky. You know, I mean, our territories in Australia are only the majority, you know, maybe 100, 150 kilometres. We know our backyard. And out of that, there is a sense of relaxation about who we are as people. As Indigenous peoples, our role is not to work. It's not to have a career. It's to exist, to care for country. And that's just so generous. It's a space that I want others to explore and experience. This is what colonisation has denied everyone else. This right to just be beautiful and never have anxiety. I mean, as Indigenous peoples, we never had jails. We never had homelessness, food poverty. Might have had moments where, you know, it's cyclical and seasonal. None of these things existed. So this sense of anxiety and depression, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And as Indigenous peoples, you know, it's not the solution, but it's part of a solution. That country wants you well. Country wants you healthy. Country wants you feel that sense of love and belonging. And so for me, this is the heart of my decolonizing efforts. I want people to belong to me through that kinship. They then belong to country. And this is what all our women are trying to do, to voice that welcome and that hand of come with us. First, we have to understand what the damage has been, not only to us, but to others being denied this and being made to feel that they are better than us in being in the right to destroy our lives and our lands. This is about healing. This is about a space of vulnerability to be together, to care for country, leave it in a better place than what we found it. Country has its own agency, country and homelands, 
They have their own sovereignty, they have their own power. And in that power, they have the ability to invite relations, whether that be with Indigenous people or non-Indigenous people. Colonisation is about controlling, taking ownership of, taking charge of, speaking for and ignoring. So in process of colonisation, if that's just left unfettered and able to perpetuate and expand and grow, then what gets left out is country. Mother Earth needs people to understand her. We want people to fall in love with country. We want people to know that country is a being and is an entity that requires care and love. It's not a land, it's not an asset, it's not a place of extraction, it's not a place to put a boundary around, to put a name upon. This is important, it's a massive action of decolonisation is to flick that switch, come to country, to fall in love with country, to honour and respect homelands and to honour and respect those who speak for their country and their homelands. The ones that are born onto those countries and places, and in our cases, tens of thousands of years. Our DNA is inherent within the country that we come from. We can't separate ourselves from it. So we're the people that are making that invitation. That's why it's a little bit different in that the co-authorship for me is Tabricorn and Country and Emma Lee. Country has the right to be acknowledged as writing this story. I don't act alone. And so this is very different. Let me tell you about colonisation in the academy and that the metadata systems cannot handle that co-authorship with country. It just doesn't occur. And so it's really sad that because individuals have to make themselves develop up a brand, become an economic function, it's high anxiety. Whereas when I have country as my co-author, all of that's taken away. When you develop up this sense of cultural humility and cultural modesty that I am nothing without country. And so country is indeed the first co-editor of our book. 